Hi, the following podcast is brought to you by Radical Road Brewery, the best craft beer in the heart of Leslieville. Find them at 1177 Queen Street East. That's Radical Road Brewery. I'm Sean Cherry. I'm one of the, the team and co-authors of the book Tomorrow is Too Late, Toronto Hardcore Punk in the 1980s. And my name is Fran Grasso, and I'm uh, part of the book team that uh, helped with the uh, Tomorrow's Too Late book on Hardcore in the 80s. Welcome to the music. Welcome, 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 welcome. It's, it, I'm, I'm very excited to have you both on with us today. Um, I, I, I want to I tell you a very quick story to start off. And it was, um, I was, I think 21, I was a musician touring and stuff. And, and I got a hernia. So I went up to Shouldice Clinic up in Thornhill and I was getting my, my hernia done. And, and they give you, well, first of all, I'm, I'm, I'm afraid of needles and everything else. So they, they pump me up with extra Valium or whatever it was ahead of time. And then, and then they gave you Demerol. And uh, I guess because I was 21 and then there was another guy who was about my age, similar age-ish, maybe a couple of years older. And, um, and he and I were the last two to go into the operating room because we were the youngest. Everybody else was, you know, generally hernia in your 50s and 60s kind of thing. And uh, I remember the nurse coming in and giving the two of us shit because we were just chat, 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 right? And, and she's like, you guys should be asleep. And there were guys around us that were like, ah, you know, higher than a kite and everything else. And as we're chatting, we both realize we're musicians. And so we start talking about it. And I said, oh, I'm Greg, you know, just by the way, I'm Greg from, from the life. And I can't remember who it was, but said, hi, I'm so-and-so from Bunch of Fucking Goofs. And we're like, oh, oh. so it was just, it was, it was great. Like we're sitting there for however long, an hour or so. And, and then we finally made this connection. So uh, I just wanted to start that off because I think we're going to be talking about them tonight. Um, yeah, they have the, the goofs are sure to come up. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure they, I'm sure they are. So um, and were you a fan of the goofs when, uh, like, did you know about them? Oh, I absolutely knew about them playing in okay. Toronto. I mean, we all, yeah. I think, I think we all competed to see who could put our flyers up higher on the, the, uh, the light posts and, yep. and, and, you know, wall, wallpapering uh, Young and Dundas um, mm-hmm. back in the day with as many posters as possible. So absolutely. I mean, yeah, there was, there was Dick Duck and the Dorks and there was a whole bunch of us back, back in the, the day. Uh, I wasn't playing punk back then, but I was mm-hmm. more on the new wave side of it, but right. yeah, I, I absolutely knew them. Can I, can I just say, I, I have a show dice story as well, <laughs> but, but it is not punk related. It's music related, not punk related, but I think in the ethos of punk, it probably makes sense to say this anyways. Right. Um, so my dad was in show dice. Same thing. I bet you it was like the same year that Greg went in. So Greg went in a teenager. My dad went in, he's older. And he was in the same room as a keyboardist of the band Doug and the Slugs. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> not, not punk, but I think that's a punk story. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We, we probably were. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. No, I, I just. More, no, more like new ways. musicians went there. Yeah. Uh, no, and, and I assure you, we're going to get to asking you questions instead of us telling you stories. But yeah, absolutely. One thing, the one thing to, to, to get to the first question I want to ask is I mean, for, for me, uh, I was a metalhead, sort of early 80s. You know, from there, my bud's brother brought home records from, I think he went to Guelph or, or uh, Kitchener, Waterloo, whichever, anyway, maybe Waterloo. And so he brought home albums from, from college. And it was like Tenpole Tudor and a lot of sort of the, the British sound that was coming in, right? And then from there, you know, I started exploring 
and you know with bands like you know gen x you know as it starts to speed up and gen x and and even some of the local bands um granted not hardcore but i think of like you know uh rebels forgotten rebels durango 95 uic so and again but the guys from durango were buds of mine so that's sort of how i sort of got into that and then from there into sort of the black flag and the kennedys kind of sound um and, and again i loved everything from from new wave all the way through you know with that sort of setting it up that way from from my perspective what i'm really keen to know is both of your journeys into the love of punk and hardcore Sure. I'll start with my, like I was a, you know, a rocker kid, uh, you know, listening to, to the, you know, the black Sabbath and that sort yep. of stuff. And slowly, I, I think seeing the new music uh, on mm. city TV exposed us kids. Like I, you know, I, I came of age in hardcore in the mid eighties, started getting involved in, in that mid eighties period. But my first concert was uh, t- teenage Head opening for Triumph, so I went to go see Triumph. But Teenage Head was was opening because they were both on Attic Records at that time. Playing, I was eighty one at the CNE, and it was like early summer. And my second concert after that was Devo, and seeing all of that stuff. And it wasn't until seeing stuff on CDTV that I realized that there was this stuff locally. So, you know, it was, you know, you'd see The Clash come on there, but then it was really when I started seeing bands like Direct Action makes an appearance. And Daniel Richler went into the, the T-shirt factory bunker they were practicing in in the basement. And it was things like that that pulled me in. And then I started volunteering at CKLN radio station when I was a teenager with another friend of mine, Calvin. And that's what pulled me into getting involved in interviewing bands um, through that that experience, volunteering at CKLN at Ryerson, hmm. which is which has now changed its name uh, all these years later. Yeah. What about you, cool. Fran? Uh, so um, I was uh, uh, at uh, Catholic schools. Um, pretty much for elementary school and high school. Um, I really hated it. And uh, so when I heard punk music, it was kind of um, like a refreshing, you know, outlet for, you know, my, I guess, anger towards, you know, uh, my Catholic upbringing. Um, And, uh, and so I, I first heard, I think it was like Sex Pistols or Generation X or one of, you know, one of those, you know, typical British bands, The Clash. And uh, so that's what kind of got me into it. And then I started looking uh, like in uh, the Now magazines and uh, looking for shows where, you know, maybe there was one of these punk bands that uh, would come to uh, to play. And um, and so that's how I started going to uh, to shows, um, you know, seeing local bands and then, you know, first British bands. But then um I kind of was more into the American um, bands uh, like Black Flag and Circle Jerks. And and um, it just was more relatable to me because I, I didn't grow up in, you know, like, a, a I guess, a lower, you know, class uh, British um, society. Um, I, I didn't really care about Margaret Thatcher or, you know, um, the queen. So, um, it it was, for me, it was more the American hardcore that was appealing. Fran, I want to ask you about this, you know, in a, in a lot of music, 
um, in, you know, Greg and I in, in doing this uh, podcast have done research into different bands and music as, you know, as we prepare uh, to speak with guests. And, you know, one of the things that sometimes we come up with is, is about, you know, bands as they're playing to audiences, you know, one of the complaints, if there is ever a complaint was there was a lot of guys in the crowd. There's, there's all, you know, there's a lot of quote unquote, the term bros. Right. Um, and in doing some research into this particular book and into, you know, more particularly into the scene, there seems to be, and correct me if I'm wrong here, Fran, uh, an acceptance of all people. It, you know, it wasn't, mm-hmm. this is only for the high school kids or the rebels, but, you know, whether you were a guy or a girl, whether you were gay or queer, like whatever, mm. yep. this is your home. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. Sure. Yeah, that's that is true. Uh, It was basically uh, where misfits uh, could get together and find their people. Um, And I'm sure Sean agrees that, you know, the scene was very accepting of, you know, um, gay people and, uh, um, you know, just nerds, um, anybody who didn't really fit in, um, like was welcome. I I never had a problem. I felt I always felt comfortable around um, the the guys that I used to hang out with, and uh, the, you're right, there wasn't as many women as there were uh, men, um, but there was never a, like a threatening feeling for me, and it part may, maybe had to do with the the type of crowd that I hung out with, but mm-hmm. um, yeah, and I, I don't know if Sean wants to elaborate. Yeah, no, and I think like I, you know, reflecting back on it from my experience, I thought the, you know, it was it was sort of like that. There was a, you know, the ratio of men to women was much higher, but I think we had so many women involved, and there were such prominent women. Like I think of one of the more prominent people is Jill Heath, who was a, you mm-hmm. know, a promoter, DJ, and and uh, and ran a label called Lone Wolf, and she was such a fixture in the scene. And there was such prominent. I think there's this this uh, myth that the first wave of punk from the '70s was much more female friendly and hardcore was was bros in a sausage fest which is t- true to some degree but but i think you know fran and 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 other women were very prominent and most of the women involved were doing things they were putting out zines they were you know running record labels they were promoting shows and it was interesting when we were interviewing a bunch of bands that weren't from toronto that played in toronto for the book I sort of reflected on that and so many of the ones that I thought were from like scenes in San Francisco where I saw a lot more prominence in photos, at least of women, they were saying, no, 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 no. Toronto was well more represented by, there was a lot more women and prominent women in the Toronto scene than any of the U S scenes that they had toured to. So what, why, why did, did they, did they say why, or do you have thoughts on why that was Toronto versus some of the other scenes? They they said in some cases, I think San Francisco in particular got really violent really fast. I think mm-hmm. the punk scenes in California gravitated to violence quicker, and we had less of a violence problem in Toronto. There, I mean, there wasn't no violence, but it wasn't the same as you would see in other punk scenes. So I think that was part of it. Hmm. That's true. It was pretty safe. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Awesome. When, when I first started researching, I, I thought, oh, awesome. We've spoken with Art Bergman. We've got we've got punk music down. And then I said, well, well wait a second. Art's art from the West Coast. This yeah. is a book about Toronto. Um, you know, shot either of you actually is there a, was there a regional difference? Is there a regional difference uh which might explain why the focus was on 
the Toronto scene and maybe not a Canadian hardcore punk scene? I mean, it was, it's difficult because we could have done, uh, you know, something and it's really, we called it Toronto as, as sort of a placeholder and it's really, you know, the, you know, the broader area around Toronto. So sure. like, I think the first wave punk, both Toronto and Hamilton were really scene makers. So in that early seventies, Toronto was punk, you know, had punk stuff going on before punk existed. So like 70, mid seventies, Hamilton and Toronto, you know, the likes of simply saucer and teenage had the vile tones, all that we were setting the scene in terms of, of punk. And I'd say for hardcore, we were not that we were late to it, but we weren't a scene setter. Like it started happening here. Like, you know, on the West coast in the U S hardcore's happening 1979 ish with the black flags uh, of the world and, and some of that stuff is happening then. And it ca- catches on on the East coast a little later, the DC scene happens a little bit later and same with Toronto. I think, you know, we're not seeing prominent punk things until 81, 82 and DOA was living here. And they're the, the, the folks that came up with the hardcore 81 album title that influenced calling hardcore, hardcore, and they were out here and they played a number of shows. And one was this anti-nuke fest at um, Nathan Phillips Square in 1980. And sort of, you know, that was one of the more prominent things. And another prominent one, there was two shows in 81 and 82 with the Dead Kennedys playing at the concert hall. And the first one was pre- predominantly first wave punk. So it was um, L'Etranger, who are sort of, you know, that middle ground who were more um, uh, clash sounding. And uh, why am I forgetting the other band that opened? But it was the remnants of a first wave Toronto punk band. And then by the time they come eight months later, it's Youth, Youth, Youth and the Young Lions are opening. So true hardcore bands opening. And that 81 to 82 was sort of that that demarcation of Toronto getting into hardcore. So one of the things I'm interested to know is, is, is like, how did this how did, how did you how did this book come to be? What was the process in terms of, you know, pulling this together. Because I understand there were a lot of people that helped you. Yeah, and it was really a collective effort. Uh, the, the other fellow who you'll be talking to for the metal book, Derek Emerson, was in a band called MSI, More Stupid Initials. And he had a Facebook page where he, you know, you know, post flyers up and we were all reminiscing. And there'd been all those really great 70s books that were done in the last little bit. So there was Treat Me Like Dirt from Liz Worth, uh, Trouble in the Camera Club from Don Pyle, and then Colin Brunton did the great uh, Last Pogo and Last Pogo Jumps Again documentaries. And we were like, why isn't there an 80s hardcore book? Like, you know, we had a great scene. Why hasn't somebody covered it? And we were all kids that did fanzines. And we were like, well, I guess we have to do this. So <laughs> Fran and, and others, Steve Perry at CIUT, jumped on board. And, and, and we started doing this as a collective group. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, I think it just came out of uh, starting to post um, old flyers and, and photos on Facebook and, uh, and then, yeah, a bunch of us started talking about, you know, doing something to kind of um, uh, memorialize the, the, you know, the days of the past. Um, so yeah, so there was um, Simon Harvey and Paul Morris and Tim Freeborn who did a lot of transcribing, and so it was a, a group of past uh, musicians and and people that were in the scene um, that you know collaborated, and uh, and there was a lot of input from people that just took photos, um, and it it was really a, like a a huge 
group effort uh, comprised of, you know, probably most people that were part of that scene. Was it, was it, oh, sorry. Was it always yeah. going to be a book or like, was it just something you were pulling together and it could have been a book, could have been a doc or I was. No, I think we always, planned, yeah. Yeah, yeah. planned yeah. to do a book. Yeah. Derek, we wanted Derek to have a lot it. of the flyers. Sorry, Sean, go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say Derek Emerson, who was involved, had done a documentary before with his his wife on one man bands, and I think he learned the lessons of rights and all the issues you'd face <laughs> doing a documentary. Mm-hmm. And we had none of that with a book. Like we had thirty people give us their photo collections, and you know we gave we gave photo credits everywhere, but we only had the rights to use it, knowing that this was sort of a, a community effort. So people were not uh, interested in it, and because it was self published, there wasn't like. You know, we, we shopped it around to a few publishers and they were all like, if you're going to do a book, you're going to have to do it this way. And we went, no, 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 no. Like the, we had a vision for it. And, you know, we had a great group, uh, Goods and Services, who are a design company, hopped on board and volunteered designing it uh, in part. Uh, they were you know applying for design awards and they won seven or eight huge design awards for the book. And it's got a really unique layout. And then we also won the... Uh, the Toronto Heritage Toronto Book Award for it as well. Nice. Yeah, and Flash Reproductions awesome. helped us actually create the book as well. That's, so that was good. And, yeah. yeah, they were the printers, yeah. That's that's fantastic. Um, I assume, to your point of what you mentioned earlier, in terms of people coming forward and, like, word gets out around something like this, people want to want to provide you. Like, we've had um, the Flyer Vault his name's escaping right daniel Mm -hmm. daniel you know we had daniel on from the flyer vault and and he constantly has people i mean i i remember we were talking about the peppers i sent him the video of the peppers at lee's palace for the first time and so i assume you had people just like wanting to contribute and wanting to help provide for this project yeah definitely and it it kind of is a testament to how the scene was back then and how you know the same people are today and they they just want to help and want to contribute and uh and so that that really helped make the book a success yeah we had a Facebook page for each book as we created them, mm-hmm. and that really became the place where people could reach out to us and I'd say. Like I would have gotten off Facebook years ago if it wasn't for these books, because it really was our only way to get to some of these bands and to get to some of these guys. Like, you know, uh, and it really was a helpful vehicle. Both to, and people felt a sense of ownership as we created the book, I think, because we would do interviews. A lot of the book interviews we did at CIUT with Steve Perry, and he's released some of them as sort of podcasts as we did them. And Steve's really been an archivist for the Toronto punk scene and has the longest running punk show uh, ever that started at York uh, Radio at CHRY and then moved to CIUT. And we would put up photos of us interviewing the bands at CIUT or the other interviews that we did, and people would get really excited as we did it. So, Yeah, it brings back a lot of memories for, for people, you know. Um, it, you know, good memories, I think, mostly. Yeah. Yeah, yep. for sure. Um, so we, we've met, we've, we've, CIUT and CKLN have been brought up a couple of times already, you know, as we've been discussing here. Um, I'd, I'd love to explore sort of how, you know, that, that college radio, I mean, it, you know, Spirit of Radio brought in some UK bands and broke some stuff, but really, you know, I want to explore that, the, the influence that that college radio scene had on, on the scene at the time. Yeah, and the, the big one for that would be CKLN's uh, Brian Taylor, who is a, a famous uh, person in the scene who worked at the Record Peddler, was the singer for Youth, Youth, Youth. 
he had a show on CKLN called Arc Rock. And that really was sort of the, you know, I believe it was I'm trying to remember. I think it was Tuesday nights, and that would set your scene for you going to the record peddler on Saturday afternoon, and what purchases you were going to make were sort of dictated by what he had on that show. And he, you know, started out with you know just a a, a punk setup, and then he started fusing in the the new metal stuff that was coming and the crossover stuff that was happening as well, and really was a, a, a taste maker for people. He was, a, a, I don't know if you'd ever been to the record peddler in that era, mm-hmm. like they were on Queen Street and then they were up on Carlton. He was, he was an intimidating fellow to any of us teenagers. Mm-hmm. And I interviewed da- uh, Daniel Richler as part of the book and he was saying how much he was intimidated. And this is when he was on the new music mm-hmm. and was sort of, you know, the epitome of, of cool to some, some guys and kids. Uh, but he, uh, he, he was intimidated by Brian Taylor as well. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, I used to uh, set my um, cassette player to record um, the shows so that I could, you know, listen back and catch the, you know, any of the bands that I liked and, you know, make note of them so that I could, uh, you know, take my notes to down to the record peddler. Because back then, that was, you know, one of the, the main ways of hearing new music. Yeah. And, 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 and you talk about the record peddler and, and, you know, that's another topic I wanted to touch on was the importance of those sort of independent I mean, I grew up in Durham, so to me, it was Mike Starr's Star Records out in, out in Durham, right? Which is where mm-hmm. we where we explored. Um, can you talk about the importance of those independents and what they were bringing in and the impact that they had? Yeah, oh, they, were, to, they were yeah. huge. Yeah, go ahead, yeah. Sean. Yeah, it's just, yeah, we covered some of them in the book, uh, mm-hmm. and there was even like some of the used record shops like Vortex, uh, which was on Dundas East and then on Queen. Like they were one of the few places you could bring consignment things as well. And they would sell new stuff along with the used stuff. But the, the record peddler itself was unique. I mean, so many of those record shops had some great stuff and they brought in the imports, but the peddler really was the place that was a community center for us. It was, you know, you, you could sell your zines there. The flyers were up for people looking to form a band. You would buy the tickets for whatever show you were going to. So it was more of a hub than any of them. Like, you know, there was cheapies and Sam's and all of that. And I think they were, you know, really important. Um, We were talking with Ben Hoffman, who was the guy that ran the record peddler. And he was talking about, he met with uh, the fellow who was setting up the flagship HMB store in the UK in the early eighties. And he said that that he was influenced by four stores when he opened that up and two of them were Toronto stores. So one was Sam's, one was the record peddler. Another one was, um, uh, Home of the Hits in Buffalo, and then Bleaker Bob's in, in New York City were the four record shops that uh, influenced how he set up the new HMV in, in mm-hmm. London. Wow. It's, it's, it's fascinating to me um, as, as someone who's, you know, not, not, a, not a connoisseur of hardcore punk, uh, the type of uh, topics and subjects uh, and themes that can be found in music from that time. Um, you know, very focused on societal issues, you know, whether it was, um, you know, progressive politics around gender and race and things of that nature. Um, you know, bands showing up at, at protests, uh, to perform and, and bring audience in. Um, you know, why, why is that? Why, why did, hardcore focus or seem to focus on these sorts of themes at the time. 
Pat? <laughs> well, I, I think, I, and I think, like you know, there was a lot of political things in hardcore, and even there was hardcore that was consciously not political as well, and even that was political in a way because it was talking <laughs> about stuff that nobody else would sing about. Like I'm thinking about, you know, Black Flag singing songs like depression or things like you know things mm. that people were experiencing. So they were either experiential things uh, or. Uh, you know, bands like the Descendants singing about their suburban home and drinking coffee and, and stuff like that was it was still uh, antithetical to what all the, the music was. And I think it was really a response to how bloated rock got. And I think it was like, OK, like here, you, you know, those those scenes of, of you know, the, the you know, Rick, Rick Wakeman playing the keyboard at Wembley Stadium or things like that and the excesses of of rock was really about stripping it down. And I think, you know, we all, the, the music we listened to all gravitated towards stuff. And as Fran said, she wasn't interested by the politics of, of the UK. Uh, I, I was interested in some of that having, you know, uh, being of a Scottish background and not interested in, in the queen and, and things like that. So I like some of the stuff coming out of the UK punk bands, but I think the, like the, it was interesting because it was just really, you know, either political or personal and the personal as political as well. And one of the things like we, we had some great bands, but what we're probably the, was the biggest mark from Toronto were um, we were, there's a few documentaries that, that claim this as well. We were likely the birthplace of queer core or as it was called then homo core. Okay. And it was, and, and then also uh, riot girl. Uh, came out of Toronto and the the big influence for both of those was a group called Fifth Column uh, and they you know there and then the other part for the queer core was the, the zines that they did along with other friends and people like Bruce LeBruce the film director were really instrumental in setting up and it was interesting because there was a uh, uh, an event here in 88 called the Anarchist Unconvention and it had been in San Francisco the year before. And so there was all this music and uh, all the folks from San Francisco came to Toronto for this event. Uh, and all the shows were at the Silver Dollar and a few places around there. And um, the, the the folks from San Francisco had been seeing these zines and they thought that there was this huge gay punk community in Toronto. And it was literally a dozen people or 20 people that were in this scene and we're producing this stuff, but they took it back home to San Francisco after this anarchist unconvention event in 88. And it blew up from there. And it was really, you know, the Bruce LeBruce's and the, the, the fifth columns of the world that, that influenced all of that. Uh, um, and it was, you know, those, so those were our big claims to fame in terms of punk. Yeah. Well, that's really interesting. Um, okay. So you talked about the anarchist unconvention in Toronto, uh, 1988, uh, famously or infa infamously, uh, Dave Grohl, uh, with, uh, with the band Scream performs, uh, in Toronto. And I know there's, you know, there's a lot of discussion around, uh, you know, when people look, look at the history, uh, of this music, it almost goes from, you know, 70s punk and then there's a gap and then all of a sudden there's Nirvana. Yeah, um, yeah. So, so I'm hoping, you know, one of you or both of you can maybe give us a, a bit of a history lesson on uh, <laughs> Friday's <laughs> pointing to Sean. <laughs> He's the history guy. <laughs> on how we get from 70s punk to Nirvana. It wasn't just someone went to sleep and woke up. 
and there's, you know, Kurt Cobain screaming into a mic. Um, what's, what's, where does, I guess, where does Nirvana come from? And what's that impact of, uh, of eighties hardcore? Yeah. And I think, I think like punk dies a horrible death real quick. Like it, you know, it starts earlier and I think people imagine punk being this British thing and it's really a uh, North American thing from the, like, you know, from places like Ohio, you know, there's the Rust Belt punk bands, then there's the New York bands, the pre, you know, the pre proto punk stuff like the MC five and all that, but punk rock, when it blows up 76, 77, it's dead by 70, late 77, 78. And the, you know, like the, the sex pistols playing at the winter garden and, and, and breaking up as a band is part of that. But I think what it was is it within punk, the generation gap comes quicker. There's these basically, four-year periods and i think by the late you know 80s um to, to the late 70s rather early 80s there's this sense of that punk thing was interesting but we can do it better like mm. you know and some of the bands we talked to from toronto some of them were looking back at the old uh, first wave punk bands in toronto and wishing that they were more interested and involved in the music they were starting to create and the stuff they were interested in and some of them we're, we're like, oh, I wish those, you know, I wish Steve Leckie from the Vile Tones would come see my show or whatever. And then others are like, screw them. They're old men. We're going to do this faster. We're going to bury them. We're going to do this our way. And it was like, there was this real divide of all the people, all the bands we interviewed. And some of them, like more of them said, oh, no, that music. Yeah, that sucked. We're doing this better. We're doing it faster. And there was elements of, you know, in hardcore that we took from from that first wave punk, but we, we did it to an extreme. So first wave punk, uh, you know, there's a lot of DIY stuff, but we crank up DIY. Like there was, you know, in that first wave, everybody, including the Canadian bands all wanted to be signed to a major label. By the time hardcore happens, that wasn't a question. Like we were all doing it on our own. We were putting out independent things. And then the other thing that you see too is participation. So, you know, a lot of people were part of the, that first wave of punk scene and you see this great participation, but it, when hardcore comes, everybody's involved. Like you're doing something in the scene and it's very participatory. It's not this consumer culture thing. It, it's not a fashion and hardcore strips away the fashion. You still saw people with mohawks and stuff, but the, you know, what was, I guess the grunge look was sort of what hardcore looked like more of. It's all, you know, kids in lumber jackets and t-shirts and jeans and, and, and skateboards or, or that sort of thing. It was happening then. So I think hardcore was just a new wave of kids coming up thinking, okay, well, there was some good stuff happening there, but we're going to do it differently. We're going to do it faster. We're going to do it better. And you see in the first wave of punk too, it's also, um, there's the, the fourth wall is still up. So you see like a show of the Ramones in the seventies, and everybody's sitting there and clapping. And then by the time hardcore happens, we're jumping off the stage. There's no divide between the band and the stage that disappears under hardcore as well. Yeah. Wow. That's true. Yeah. We used to sit on the stage and watch a lot of the bands. And there was lots of times when bands would play not on a stage, just like on the ground with everybody else. And people from the crowd would join in and, you know, jump on the mic. And it, it was, it was, uh, yeah, it was, Sean is right. It was more of a, you know, 
like a, a feeling of togetherness rather than, you know, like just consumers. A communal experience kind of. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 So that whole sing-along thing cool. becomes more common. Like you would sing along or there was always bands like, you know, it became formulaic at one point, but you'd have like, you know, a really good hardcore band would have a break in a song where you knew that it would be for thrashing in the pit. And they just sort of created this environment where, you know, it's like, you know, we're coming into town, we're playing and people are going to, you know, react and dance to us no matter what. Whereas I think the first wave of punk was still this thing you consumed and you sat there and you watched uh, as part of the audience. And Dave Grohl was was in a hardcore band from Washington, uh, from Virginia, outside of Washington, D.C., uh, called Scream. And they played here at least four times. Uh, they played, a, a, you know, when we get into the Lost Venues, we'll play about a club in the annex called The Bridge, but they were playing that time at the um, uh, the Silver Dollar, sort of, you know, we moved to the Spadina late 80s, punk sort of moved there after it got kicked out of all of its other homes that we can go into. And uh, one of the headliners was also a, a group, an infamous group uh, called Millions of Dead Cops. Mm-hmm. And they change. They would change their name. It would be Multi Death Corporation. Anything that would spell out MDC, and they they crossed the border illegally to get into Canada because I think they had some warrants for a previous time they were in Toronto. Uh, when cops pulled them over and found their millions of dead cops T-shirts or buttons or things like that, <laughs> so uh, they came over um, by canoe on a uh, by uh, on water from a reserve. So they crossed over one of the reserves. And then got picked up in a van, were brought into Canada, and there was uh, the OPP were looking for them the whole time. So even when they went on stage, uh, there was a, a local band called Problem Children that went out calling themselves Millions of Drunk Canadians and started performing <laughs> some of their songs to see if the OPP would come out. Uh, but eventually, there was I happened to be out front when. Uh, the OPP did show up and they were trying to arrest Scream. They thought they were MDC and they were like <laughs> grabbing Dave Grohl and everybody else to arrest them looking for, for MDC. <laughs> wow. That's hilarious. Funny. Oh my goodness. Wow. Well, I, I think, I think that's a perfect segue into yeah. the lost venue topic. I mean, normally as we talked to before we jumped on the call here, um, you know, we usually ask, our guests sort of one or two lost venues, but I think we can probably talk about a lot of lost venues. So, um, you know, the, the bridge, I, I was listening to, um, I was listening to an interview that you did. can't remember what it was, but it was, it was, with, it was live. It was, um, and is a Dave from the bridge was there? Is it Dave? I think. Am I correct? Uh, trying to think one of the owners, one of the owners, one of the founders. Oh, Maybe I'm wrong. Oh, well, no, it was it was uh, a woman named Doug. Ildico and, and Doug Doug, 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 yeah. Doug, yeah, who's quite a character. Yeah. So yeah, I'd, li- yes. I'd love to I'd love to explore that. Um, you know, as our our first lost venue, um, the impact yeah, Dick, sounded huge. I've got a, a spreadsheet here that Derek pulled together as we were doing the book that sort of cataloged every flyer or ticket stub or thing that we had. And so we have a whole database of shows from that era because the bridge starts out um, as uh, as another venue. But let me pull up the dates here. Another one I'll talk about while I'm looking at that. In the meantime, was speaking of the goofs, they ran. Uh, they were one of the first groups. So you hear about uh, um, Ralph Alfonso uh, and and uh, doing the the first punk club, the Crash and Burn, that was in the basement of the the Liberals. So. Liberals headquarters office 
uh, and that was a famous 70s punk one, but that lasted literally, I think, a month and a half or something like that. And the Goof started um, a venue called the DMZ. Don't know if you know that one. It was on Spadina, and it had been a, a black soul club for a decade called the Paramount, and they took it over in 85 for like eight months. And uh, it, it, I think people remember it lasting years, and it literally was eight months <laughs> from like February <laughs> to, to, till eight months after that. And uh, the Goof, Steve Goof, ran a, a club forever there, and then they moved to another venue on Dover Court uh, Club Without Name, it had been called previously, and it was the DMZ too, and that lasted a month in December of that year. Uh, so that was a much shorter-lived uh, one. But I'd say the Goofs are responsible for the first really, truly longer-term uh, punk venue in Toronto with that one. Sounds very DIY. Yeah, I don't know how they kept the liquor license as long as as they did, uh, <laughs> but the um, and then the other one after that that's sort of infamous is the Turning Point, uh, which was another venue. I don't know. Have you touched on that one in in past uh, shows? I don't think so. Didn't it? Didn't it? Was, it was, sorry, go ahead. sorry. No, I did, did Andrew Smith make a one of the maybe not? Never mind. Never one mind. of the, not, the yeah, uh, miniature, not the, the miniature, the miniatures. Anyway, yeah, probably not the turning point. It was like an old folk club in the sixties and seventies, and this Irish couple ran it, and it was um, the, it still had the Jose Feliciano wallpaper as the backdrop on the stage. <laughs> And it was across from the uh, the ROM, the Royal Ontario Museum. Mm-hmm. It was upstairs, and it was there's a Mc, McDonald's there now, and it was above that yeah. uh, McDonald's, um, uh, uh, one of the long line of, of venues. And I think like first wave punk bands played there, but they just it, people could book their own shows there, and it became sort of a more uh, one of the, the bigger places. Uh, and we had this great. Um, uh, local band uh, called Chronic Submission, and they were probably 13, 12, 13 when they would play there, and they'd have to have notes in their guitar cases from their parents saying that they were uh, allowed to play there. So That's awesome. <laughs> That's and then awesome. the bridge comes along mid-80s, so it, it sort of punk moved around um, downtown, so Larry Larry's Hideaway was also home to a lot of punk and hardcore and metal mm. stuff. Um uh, in in that early eighties, till till it till it ultimately burnt down. Um, but it was sort of the Garys had the uh, the edge around the corner, which ran from seventy nine to eighty one or seventy eight to eighty one. And then after the edge, they started booking more shows between um, Larry's Hideaway, uh, and it became more prominent in the mid-80s for hardcore there was hardcore sundays where lots of different bands would play and then the larry's or the gary's would look at larry's the bigger bands like the husker dues uh, of the world that would come into town as well um that's that's that awesome was, yeah yeah i was i was i was gonna say my actually it's funny because i brought this up on the podcast a few times before my first my first toronto gig as a again a kid from whitby was at larry's hideaway <laughs> And it was, oh, wow. uh, it was, I was, I was, I think I was like, I don't know, 16 or something at the time or 15 or whatever. And uh, I'm telling you, it was, it was an eye opening experience for this, uh, this, uh, 
with B Kid. <laughs> Do you remember what show it was? No, our, like my personal time playing live. Oh, you like played my there. first my first oh. Toronto show that I ever nice. played was at at that Larry's must have been an experience. It was it was quite the experience. It was mm-hmm. um we were we were new wave like we were like uh, Silver LeMay matching outfits new wave kind of thing at wow. the time and uh, yeah it was um yeah it was uh, we were like deer in the headlights for sure for sure <laughs> at that one and I remember I remember the, the the change room being some guy's apartment where we were getting ready and whatever and then. Yeah, there you go. Well, that was way after, but anyway. Um, <laughs> oh, cool. You know, lots, lots, of, lots of hair there. Uh, but I remember being in the change room and this guy walks out of what we didn't realize was his bedroom, walks through the change room to his washroom that we thought was the washroom for the change room. And yeah, that was, uh, yeah, I, loved, I, loved, I had a lot of a lot of love for that place. Um, yeah. Never saw a lot of shows because it was not long after that, but yeah. 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 I mean, we were underage getting in there. My first shows were at the Aries and it was like, you know, it was dicey whether you could get in or not, but it was, uh, I mean, I, I always think of it as the equivalent, the closest we had to CBGBs was probably Larry's. Like when I think of the, of those, and there's so many famous, uh, live recordings done like killing joke and others played there. And, you know, some late jazz greats like Ornette Coleman played Mm -hmm. there. And, you know, it was a, it was a venue for all sorts of, uh, things i think killing joke has a bunch of live tracks from there rem did a live album from there so it sort of was a preeminent venue thanks to to the garys yeah and then the one that we started that that really was the heyday for fran in our my era was the the bridge and it started we've got shows starting back from 86 and it was originally called the the starwood club which is also a name of a club in in california and it was a fellow uh, named Sean Pilot who started booking there. He was a promoter who also, there was a, a club on Young Street called The Upper Lip, and he would book there as well. And then he ran another venue um, further down the street. Um, and then he moved over to this place in the annex. And he would go into a neighborhood and look. And this place was a Hungarian restaurant. And they had ballroom dancing at night. And, uh, and you know, we interviewed Doug about it. And they weren't making enough money. Ballroom dancers didn't drink. They didn't drink no. enough to keep a club going. So I think Sean Pilot came along and he started booking stuff there. And the, one of the first shows he books is a Johnny Thunders gig. And there was a lineup down the street to get into this Johnny Thunders gig. And the fellow who owned Lee's Palace, so Lee's Palace had been a music venue briefly in the, the, the late 70s, early 80s, and then was closed down. And he saw this massive lineup down the street. And so this Johnny Thunders gig was the inspiration for him opening Lee's Palace because he went, oh, there's this, there's a market for this. So uh, so Sean Pilot was very influential uh, in, in that way. Uh, and he was also, I don't know, he was also involved in the hair metal and metal scenes and uh, was, was, um, was manager of Sebastian Bach at one point as well. Oh. Yeah. Neat. So that and that venue, it became the bridge shortly after that, and it lasted as the bridge for quite a while, and then it changed its name. I think it got closed down. I don't know if it was like a liquor license infraction or something. And then in October '86, it becomes Ildico's, which was the name of the woman that that owned the space, and she was like a, a high school teacher, a woman of Hungarian descent, uh, who who just thought, okay, well, as a side business, I'm gonna 
do this. And, you know, we learned from Doug how much the, the rent was costing them and what an expensive venue it was. And basically most of the venues that were letting us in and we were most of the case we were underage were these, you know, old, old man bars and restaurants that were hanging on by their So they, they, you know, they were letting people book shows there because it was bringing in patrons and, and, and helping to sell, uh, beer but it really was for us it was the pinnacle of our of our scene and you know we're that you know i came around 84 you probably came shortly after that fran and mm-hmm. it really was yeah. the heyday for our scene it really was our home for a good two and a half uh almost a year period of time and there was multiple uh promoters there but jill heath who we mentioned previously and a fellow named don LaBeouf who ran something called ruben kincaid productions was the, the other promoter that was booking a lot of hardcore shows there. And he, he also managed a band called Hype. But both, it was interesting because so many bands, but all the promoters other than the Garys were from Oakville. So both oh. uh, both mm-hmm. Jill and Don were mm-hmm. Oakville, Oakville folks. Yeah, hmm. That's so interesting. Uh, this has been a fascinating conversation. I, I, I think I've got one more question I wanted to ask, and maybe I can direct this to Fran. Um mm-hmm. In focusing in on Toronto, uh, mm-hmm. you know, one of the reasons that we have this segment called Lost Venues uh, is, you know, venues have been closing for years, but it just seems that, especially in Toronto, you know, the real estate market is just bonkers, um, no matter where you are, whether it's even for residential homes, but even if you imagine these clubs, the amount of rent or, or, or taxes that needs to be paid just to keep this open, you, you, you almost need a, a millionaire or a billionaire to come along and save a club. Um, you know, that, that's recently happened as an example. But, mm-hmm. you know, hardcore punk, very do-it-yourself ethos. Um, and it seems with these costs that the kids, really, the youth that, that would make this music, that would come out and say, we're going to do this and, um, you know, they're out in the suburbs now or, or even further than that, you know, um, is, is there a, can hardcore ever come back or can a DIY music community ever exist anymore in Toronto with taxes and rents being so high in venues almost being non-existent? I think it definitely can. Um, Yeah, I'm not sure exactly how I understand what you're saying about the real estate market. It is pretty insane. Um, So many businesses after, you know, this pandemic have shut down and um, it is hard to sustain. But I I think there are still a a lot of uh, people that are interested in making new music and um, are creative enough to to find out ways to perform. So I, I could see that. Yeah, I don't I don't think that's a, you know, something that will prevent people from from, you know, doing a DIY. Yeah, I'm thinking with technology, it's almost easy. I, you know, I was just watching um, David Letterman's uh, episode with my wife the other day. Um, and oh, my goodness, the name of the artist, her and her brother, um, Billie Eilish, um, mm-hmm. you know, making literally making, you know, hit records in, in, in their room. You know, there's a sort of DIY ethos there but in terms of 
you know, I'm thinking more like the community coming together and, you know, whether it's in a small place of 20 people in a tiny room, um, you know, where you're playing and you, you can taste the sweat and feel the humidity from everyone else, mm-hmm. you know, it, can, can that exist anymore? I'm, I'm wondering. I mean, I, I think it can, Sean. I don't know what, what you think. Yeah, no, I mean, I think we still, I mean, we've got some thriving things. And before the pandemic, we were already hitting some issues with venues and availability of, of, yeah. of venues in Toronto. Oh. We had a very thriving uh, festival called Not Dead Yet that was this big international festival. It was very indie and it drew bands from all over the world. But it, they we did the book launch at their last Not Dead Yet Fest. They're still putting on shows here and there but like i think you know clubs like the hard luck and the bovine are still home to, to punk rock and then you know punk rock thrives in bizarre places like you know i think in in certain times church basements or legion halls were were the place to go and just the other weekend um uh, a friend of ours al nolan who runs cursed blessings records did an alley show for one of his bands in an alley in toronto so there's people find places to to do things. So. Yeah, yeah. It's it's funny you mentioned about the Legion. I think you know again being from Durham with you know Mike Star and Star Records and the Star Club. And I think if I'm not mistaken, the Star Club was in the basement of the Legion back when we were kids. So um, yeah, there'd be always there, there's 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 places for kids to get together and gather and and make some noise, which is which is the spirit of it. Um, so yeah. one of the questions that I'd like to ask before we finish off. And whether it's new, hardcore, in terms of up and coming and what you're hearing, or just what you're listening to, what's, uh, Fran, to start with you, what's what's in your earbuds lately? What what should people be checking out if they haven't heard before? Of new hardcore? Oh, that's, well, that's, not necessarily new. It could be, it could be yeah. what you're still listening to today. Uh, I still listen to the classics. Um, you know, my friends' bands, MSI and uh, Sons of Ishmael. Um You know, and obviously, uh, like the old American stuff, uh, Black Flag, Dead mm-hmm. Kennedys. Um, I unfortunately don't listen to a lot of new stuff these days. Um, yeah. So, yeah, that's yeah. yeah, that's about it. Yeah, fair enough. Sean? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I listened to all the classic stuff and, you know, I've obviously even at the time was into all sorts of other music and, and find stuff. I'm finding, you know, it's probably, you know, the old man syndrome or whatever, but I see, <laughs> I, I, I look for new stuff and I'm finding not so many things that are fusing new. Like I'm finding people that are doing really great versions of stuff that happened before, but I like there's little gems that happen here and there and things like Bob villain out of the UK, who uh, is part of the grime scene there fuses, you know the spirit of punk with with um with hip hop elements too and he's like a you know a young black immigrant in, in the UK or groups like the Sleaford Mods who who sort of you know take what what's happening and and do that i find inspiration to me it's always like what's the 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 new thing and uh uh you know i i'm not a lot of new new music i'm finding today is rehashing sort of styles of before without adding something new to it um but you know, those are just a couple of examples of, of bands who I think are doing something different with with the material. And, and, and any thoughts on the the post hardcore sound? I just, yeah, I, I mean, to me, it's like this the same. It's like the everything the post punk and then the post hardcore. Yeah. It's still embedded 
in the spirit of those things. So like, I, I, you know, I, I, you know, I, I was inspired by post-punk uh, while I was listening to hardcore. And, you know, I think there's, you know, some groups like I've not, you know, given much attention to the turnstiles of the world mm-hmm. that is, you know, all the rage now in hardcore, but mm-hmm. that like young, young folks are liking turnstile. So all the power to, to anybody that <laughs> sort of sees them as a, 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 a you know, a torchbearer, but yeah. Yeah. Well, fair enough. Fran, Sean, thank you so much for spending time with yeah. us. This has been really fun and uh, very enlightening for someone like myself. <laughs> well, thank thanks for having us. Pleasure. We really appreciate it. Yeah. So listen, I, I know the, the book is out of, you're out of stock. Um, but if people want to, uh, you know, be connected to the community, where's, where's the best place for them to go? Yeah. So, and you can, you can take the book out of the Toronto Public Library. They still have it. Uh, our new book, The Eve of Darkness one, which you'll be talking about shortly on another episode is still available. But if you look up UXB Press on, on Instagram and, and YouTube, we're, we're there. Derek's curating lots of really great videos on YouTube, rare old videos, UXB Press on Instagram. And then if you type, uh, tomorrow is too late into Facebook. You'll find our page there. We're still posting and Eve of Darkness as well. You'll find our page there for that book uh, as well. Awesome. Sean, Fran, thank you so much for sharing with yes, us today. You. It's been fun. Great. Thank Bye-bye. you so much. Have a good night. <laughs>